Welcome to Sanctus Church. Thanks for joining us online. We're so glad you're here. And let me just start by saying, if you're joining us and you're new and you're visiting and you're exploring Christianity, we're glad you're with us. We invite you to ask questions and discover who Jesus is as we continue to learn together. Welcome to week three of our summer series, The Real You. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 33, um, or you can open your tablets or your phones, wherever you are, and just put your finger there. We're going to get to the text in a minute. I want to start by asking a question. When it comes to your identity, whose voice are you listening to? I remember a, a season in my life where I felt like there were multiple voices speaking into who I was becoming. And that was in a time of my life when I transitioned from public school into high school. I'm sure many of you had felt similar. There were voices of my own expectations of who I wanted to be, voices of my friends and that I was bringing with me into high school and the friends I was going to make, voices from my church community, voices from my parents. But there was another layer for me in particular as well. I grew up in a large family and I had three older brothers. Now, my three older brothers are loud, energetic, opinionated. And as much as I'd like to say I'm nothing like them, I'm very much like them. And so when I got into my small high school of 250 uh, students, people already had an understanding of who I was as a Vili because of who my brothers were. I remember this one story in particular. I entered into a classroom and the teacher was doing roll call. It was in my first year. And when he came to my name, he called out Nathan Veely. And I I like to kind of be a little more outspoken so I would stand and say present. And I'll never forget what he said when I did. He kind of looked down at the page and he said, oh no, not another Veely. The problem, if I think all of us are real, is that there's so many voices in life trying to tell us who we are. So many voices trying to affirm or not affirm who we are, telling us who we should be. And I think if we're honest, we're tempted to listen to these voices. It might be that your worth and value is in the amount of money you make, or it's in your performance, or it might be a voice that your meaning, your significance, and your worth comes from the way you look. It might be a voice that says your significance, your worth, and your value is in your online platform through how many likes or followers you have. See, the temptation is not only to listen to these voices, but I think most of us are prone to look to these voices for affirmation. In fact, one of the most interesting things that I recently read is this understanding of the fragmented or the disordered self. You see, previously in the modern era, before we enter into this postmodern era, identity was found from within. It was either found through self-mastery, the ability to control or or master yourself, or through self-expression, the ability to express yourself. But the postmodern era, this contemporary context that we live in, has become disheartened with the search for a true self. And rather than looking within It looks externally to a community to find identity. It's finding our identity through the narrative in the context of a specific community. Dr. Stanley Grenz outlines this when he says this, 
the postmodern self, the full def- for the postmodern self, the full definition of someone's identity involves some reference to a defining community. In other words, he says this, the postmodern self looks to relationships for identity. You see, the problem with this is that the socially formed self is highly decentered and fluid. For a person can have as many selves as social groups in which he or she participates in. It's this idea of a fragmented self that we split ourselves up and present different aspects of who we are to different communities to look for affirmation for our our identity. Probably the clearest example of this is a digital self. It's that in this tech revolution, in this digital age, we create a digital version of who we are, constantly curating, constantly choosing, and selecting what we believe we should present as the real us. I read an article about how now one social media account is not enough, but sometimes we need up to five. One for our parents and our family. One, another Instagram account for our friends. Another Instagram account where we're trying to gain the most amount of followers. This constant recreating of ourselves, this fragmented self, if we're honest, I think leaves us feeling left a little hopeless. No one really affirms us because it's not actually who we really are. And we're still in a place of asking the question, who am I really? Which is why we're in this series called The Real You. Whose voice are we going to listen to? As Pastor John said previously, we really need to know who we are as God sees us. And so as we continue into week three in this series, uh, looking at different characters in scripture and then pulling out identity, key, uh, key pieces of our identity from these individuals, we're now going to enter into week three and we're going to look at Moses. But before we do that, would you just stop? Let's just take a moment and pray. Father, I just ask that uh, you would speak, Jesus, that you would speak to each person, whether they're at home in their backyard, in a cottage, Uh, Lord, this morning, that that we wouldn't just continue to gain information, but that we would actually hear your voice as it particularly relates to who we are as your sons and daughters. So Jesus, would you silence any voice that is not of you? In Jesus' name, amen. Moses, maybe you have never heard of Moses before. He's a very significant character in the Old Testament. Uh, Moses was someone that God chose to raise up to set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. Through a series of events, uh, God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt and he appoints Moses as the leader for the next 40 years of their journey through the desert. God is using Moses to lead the people through the desert to eventually get to the promised land where he's going to establish the Israelites as a nation, having their own space to do that. In those 40 years, God is using Moses to set the Israelites apart. Culturally, with different cultural laws, morally, with a different set of rules, ceremonially, in how they are to worship the one true God. Moses has a very significant role to play in scripture. In fact, so much so that the first century century historian Josephus stated, Moses surpassed in understanding all men that ever lived. 
and that as a general, he had few equal to him. As a prophet, none. Insomuch that in all his utterances, one seemed to hear the speech of God himself. It's this aspect of Moses' relationship with God that we're going to pull out this next identity marker. And so we'll see this here in Exodus 33. Now, let me give you a brief context of what's going on in Exodus 33. Moses has just been up on the mountain. As he does, he spends time with God, talking to God, and God is giving Moses instructions and laws and commands. And while he's doing that, the Israelites become restless that Moses is taking so long to come down off the mountain. And so they decide to create an idol. They create an idol and then they worship this idol and they actually declare that this, this idol, this golden calf, is the God who delivered them out of Egypt. Moses comes back down and he's heartbroken and so is God. In fact, God is so upset that he says to Moses, I'm, I'm essentially done, you go on ahead, but I won't be going with you. When we come to this four set of verses, verses 7 to 11, it's a bit of a sidestep out of the narrative of what's going on. It's an inside picture into Moses' relationship with God. So let's read in verse 7. It says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his own tent door. And then the text says this, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Did you catch that? God would speak to Moses face to face. In ancient Near Eastern culture, it was actually offensive to speak to your superior face to face. But here the language almost communicates an equal between Moses and God, yet we know that's not true. As one scholar says, it's to function as an idiom suggesting an honest and open relationship. It's not meant to be taken literally. That would contradict verse 20 where God says, no one can see my face and live but it's an expression of the intimacy that Moses had with God. We see this also when God says, or when the text says, as a man speaks to his friend. Think about this for a second. The God who delivered the Israelites, who parted the Red Sea, that same God calls Moses friend. He's one of two Old Testament characters that were called friend. But that changes with Jesus. Let's just jump over for a second to the gospel of John chapter 15. Uh, John is a biography of Jesus's life and chapter 15 is some of the teachings that Jesus spoke and John had written down. 
We find these words in John 15, verse 12. It says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, but to lay down one's life for their friends. As a Christian, you might be listening to that and saying, well, Jesus, isn't that what you did? You laid down your life? Are you saying, I'm your friend? Keep reading. It says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, Jesus is not saying if we obey, then we are his friends. No, he's saying my friends will do what I command. One scholar, he says it like this, the obedience is not what makes them friends. It's what characterizes his friends. What's the obedience? To love one another. How does this work? Well, it works because if we understand God's love for us, if we understand who God is and that we're his friend, we can't go on hating our neighbor. No, we love our neighbor as a reflection of God's love for us. Keep reading. Then it says in verse 15, I no longer call you servants or in the original language, slaves, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You see, when you trust Jesus with your life, when you turn from your sin, when you acknowledge your your pride and your independence from him and repent and give your life to Jesus, at that moment, Jesus calls you friend. This is our, our third identity marker, is that you are a friend of God. You are a friend of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was reading this, it says that both servants and friends obey. You see, this isn't like a buddy-buddy friend like we might have today. No, Jesus is still God. He's still Lord, and he's still, we still submit to him. So what does it mean to be a friend? What's the difference between a servant and a friend? Well, servants are required obedience without the luxury of the relationship. Whereas friends are invited uh, into the plans and invited into relationship with the king because the king delights in sharing his heart. Listen to what one scholar says. He says, a ruler demands obedience in all of his subjects. His slaves, however, are simply told what to do. While his friends are informed of his thinking, enjoy his confidence and learn to obey with a sense of privilege and with full understanding of the master's heart. Did you catch that? With full understanding of the master's heart. You see, the God who created the universe, the all-powerful, all-loving God, he not only uh, calls you friend, but he actually wants to share his heart with you. We see this when Jesus says, all that I have learned from the Father, I now share with you. That everything the Father has taught me, now I want to share with you. I want you to know the heart of God. If you remember nothing else when you're listening to this, just remember that the heart of being a friend is to know the heart of the one who befriends you. That that's what it means to be a friend of God, is that God wants to share his heart with you. As I was working through this text and and praying about this message, I I felt this burden that most of us, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we are, are changed by grace, 
Jesus calls us a friend, but we still continue to believe we're servants. That, that we miss that aspect of knowing the heart of God. You know, we, we think that God just wants my money, that all he cares about is, is what I'm going to give, yet we don't know his heart, that he's a generous God, and that Jesus' words are actually true. It's better to give than receive. That as a servant, we think that God just wants to deprive us of fun from all of his rules, yet we don't know his heart, that he actually cares about us and knows what's best and wants to protect us. That maybe we think as a servant, we're just supposed to attend church and volunteer because that's what we should do, yet we don't know his heart, that he actually wants us to have a loving community where people support and encourage and pray for us and help us grow in our relationship with him. Maybe we think that God just allows suffering suffering because that's what we deserve. Yet we miss his heart that he suffered more than we ever will and he's present in the midst of suffering. That most of us, Jesus still calls us friends, yet we still believe we're servants. So what does it mean to know the heart of the one who befriends you? What, how does this change our lives? Three things. The first is that we need to take time to listen, that this actually impacts our schedule. It impacts the way we live our lives. Back to the text, look at verse seven. It says this, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called this the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now this tent is not the tabernacle. It's not the place where they would go and offer sacrifices. No, scholars are clear. This this tent is actually a place of meeting and connecting with God. It's a place of intimacy. But I want you to notice the repetition in this verse. The tent pitched outside the camp, far off from the camp, a tent of meeting which was outside the camp. The text is clearly indicating this was a separate place. What I love about this is that it's not just that Moses connected with God on the mountain or Moses connected with God walking or, or even in his own tent, but he actually created a space that was separate for spending time connecting with God. You see, for Moses, knowing God's heart, spending time with God was so important that he created this separate space and separate time to do that. If something's important to us, then we set time apart. You know, I have two daughters. I love them to bits. And when my oldest daughter was about four or five, I began this practice of monthly date nights with dad. It was something simple that I thought I could do that would help my daughters feel like I was available and to know how much I love them. It's been really fun in our home. Uh, They choose one month and then the next month I choose and we take turns going back and forth. I'm not perfect at it though. Recently, there was a season when we were moving uh, last year and we went for a span of like two to four months without having a date night. I'll never forget the moment my daughter was sitting in the living room and she was watching a show on the iPad. And because the iPad was connected to my calendar, a reminder popped up, date night with dad was when we were supposed to have our date night. And she looked at me and she said, Dad, we haven't had our date night in so long. 
And I remember the Lord was so clear in that moment. It wasn't because I didn't have time. It was because I prioritized other things above that. So what does it look like to set time apart? This was a practice Jesus did. He withdrew, in the Gospel of Luke, it says he often withdrew to lonely places to pray. And I'm not, I'm not talking about how we connect with God. We just went through a series on spiritual practices, talking about how we can facilitate a deeper relationship with God and grow spiritually. And if you are interested in learning more, go back and listen to that series. But simply all I'm talking about is prioritizing space and time to meet with God. Please hear me, this is not a guilt thing. The servant says, I have to do this because this is what I'm supposed to do. The friend says, I get to do this because I want to know what God's heart is for me and for the world that I live in. So take time to think about what it looks like to create your own tent of meaning. You know, maybe that means in your drive to work, you're not going to listen to music or have the radio on, that that 30 minutes is going to be your time to pray and to talk to Jesus. Maybe it's a specific space in your home, like it was for my dad who had his rocking chair beside the wood stove and would get up early before anyone else sit and pray and read his Bible. Maybe you've got young kids at home. Maybe your tent of meeting is actually in the middle of the night when you're feeding and that's a moment where you say, God, I am tired, but I know you want to share your heart with me. And so I'm here. Take time this week to search and and explore and ask questions about what your tent of meeting looks like. As you spend time with God and create that space, you'll learn about his heart for you. Secondly, being a friend of God actually impacts our approach to the presence of God. Look at verse 8. It says this, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, the people would rise up. Each would stand at his own tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and and the Lord would speak to Moses. I couldn't stop thinking about this verse and the two aspects of it. First is their expectation or anticipation for God to show up through the cloud. They would stand at the door of the tent, wait for Moses to come go inside it, and then the pillar of cloud would come down. But the second part was their anticipation towards God meeting with Moses in the tent of meeting that was for anyone to seek the Lord, as verse 7 says. I couldn't think, help but think about in my own Christian life, and, and maybe you feel this way, it's often easier to believe that someone else is the friend of God more so than you're a friend of God. It's easier to think that, oh yeah, of course God would speak to them. Look at how holy or spiritual they are. Look at the way they live their life. They've read the Bible. They grew up in a Christian home. It's so much easier to look at someone else and think, of course God would meet with them but what do you believe about God's perspective towards you, God's approach to you? See, what does scripture have to say? Hebrews 10, 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. The most holy place was the place where God dwelled, where his presence was most intimate, that only few people could enter. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, we now all have access to it 
This is the gospel. This is what you believe if you're a Christian, is that each one of us turned our backs on God. We chose to do our, our own way of life to reject God And God reaches into our broken world by his grace and he awakens us not only to our need for him, but to his love. And that when we respond and we say yes, we lay down our lives in response to that. We repent and acknowledge our sin and come to Jesus only by his grace through faith. Only because of what Jesus has done. Let me just say, if you're here and you're listening and you're you're watching this through the week, and you have been exploring Christianity, and you're in a spot where you're wrestling through that decision, you might even be listening to this and feeling a stirring in your heart. We'd love to pray with you. I would encourage you to just pray and ask God to make himself real to you. We have a prayer team online if you're engaging with us on on Sunday morning or through the week and find us on our webpage. We'd love to pray for you and with you. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, do you actually believe these words to be true? That the gospel is not just one of salvation, but reconciliation. That that Jesus actually is available. Did you notice what the scripture says? It says that we can enter his presence with confidence. You may be familiar with this song, The Blessing, that's been going around, which is based off of this Jewish blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon him, being gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you. Like Moses, who speaks face to face with God, Jesus, God turned his face towards you when Jesus hung on the cross. You have confidence to enter into his presence. Simple question going into this week. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about his accessibility and his availability, his accessibility. You know, maybe you think God would never meet with you because, well, the things that you've done in your life. Do you believe that you have to make yourself perfect before you enter into his presence? That, that no, 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 I've got I've to sort out my finances first before I come to God because I know that's not healthy. Or, or maybe I got to get my thought life under control because there's this sin I'm struggling with and I got to get that sorted out because God couldn't accept me the way that I am. Or maybe the way that I've been speaking to the people I love, my, my spouse, my kids, my immediate family, God would never accept me because of the decisions or the way that I've been speaking or the things that are going on in my life. There is nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable to God because he accepts you where you are. He invites you to come into his presence just as you are. And then he'll do the changing. What do you believe about God's accessibility? And secondly, what do you believe about his availability? You know, do you believe that your issues are too little for God? That God is too busy? That he doesn't have time for you because he's got more important things going on in the world, especially in this season, that your little things before God, that that, that, that's not of importance to him. What do you believe about God's availability? And as I was wrestling this through, I just had a sense, maybe some of us even grew up with a father or, or maybe even a mother who was just unavailable. A dad was too busy and he was unavailable. And as a result, we've put that belief on God the Father. I encourage you, just take time this week 
ask Jesus to make these beliefs known and then to speak his truth into them. The heart of being a friend is to know the heart of the one who befriends you, who invites you to come into his presence with confidence, without fear, without shame, to come to him. Finally, every week we've been doing an action item connected with an identity. Well, being a friend of God leads to intercession. The identity marker is being a friend and the action item is intercession or interceding for others. That is to offer prayers on others' behalf. Let's go back to Moses for a second. You see, Moses' friendship with God impacted his community. It wasn't just about him. The larger context of Exodus 33, I had already shared, where God was so fed up, fed up with the Israelites that he says, I'm done. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go with you lest I destroy them, that God is so upset. And when God shares this with Moses, Moses' response is to pray and intercede on the people's behalf. Now, what I love about this is that God shares this with Moses. Psalm uh, 25 says the Lord confides in those who fear him, that the Lord shares his heart with those who fear him. And in the process of God sharing his heart, not only does God shape and change our heart, but our heart begins to break for the things that his heart is broken for. And it moves us into a place of intercession, to a place of prayer. Now, what I love about Moses' intercession is, is that Moses was not just praying for his friends. Moses was praying for people who had also rejected him. If you have time to read through the narrative of the Israelites as they're going through the desert, they're grumbling all the time. They're miserable people at many different points. And in fact, at one point, they even reject Moses as leader. It says in Acts 7 and Numbers 14. You see, my natural orientation towards people who reject me is not to pray for them. It's to fight or to fix it, maybe a rare occasion to, f- to flee. There's a situation that I've been thinking about recently that I think illustrates this well. And um, I think f- it's happened a couple times in my life and few moments uh, create this feeling of rejection like I feel when this happens. And, and maybe it's happened to you too. It's when the waste collector doesn't take your garbage. I, I don't know if you've had that experience, but uh, I, I remember the first time it happened, like a normal garbage day, I get up early in the morning. I'm running through the house in my pajamas, collecting all the garbage, You get the bags, you get them sorted, you tie them off, you're checking to make sure their weight is okay, even though you don't have a scale, and you're guessing. You run down to beat the timeline, put your garbage at the end of the street, pray, pray that everything goes smoothly, and then head off for your day of work. I remember driving back home later that day, only to look and to see my garbage at the end of the driveway, but not just my garbage, these bright yellow and orange stickers on it, these marks of shame, knowing that something was incorrect about the way you had done it. And it's so embarrassing because, you know, everyone who drove by looked at you and maybe judged you because you tried to sneak more garbage in it. My response the first time this happened to me was naturally to call the township. And I learned two things when I did. One, 
their loyalty towards their workers is really high. Secondly, I'd actually been doing it wrong for a long time and the the waste collectors were really gracious with me. Now, what is your natural orientation towards your enemies? And I'm not saying waste collectors are my enemies. No, if you work in Clarington Waste Collection, thank you. Please take my garbage. I love you. But what is your natural orientation when you feel rejected? Is it to pray? We see Moses did this time and time again. I think the most powerful example of intercession we see in scripture is when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Are you willing as a friend of God to intercede for others? Are you willing to intercede for others who, not just your friends, but even those who you might not even consider to be in your friend group? Now, I want to clarify, this doesn't mean we sit down and we write a list of all the people who've ever upset us and we pray only for those people. No, intercession is more about a relationship with God and entering into what God is already doing. Listen to what one author says about intercession. She says this, intercession prayer is not primarily about thinking that I know what someone else needs and trying to wrestle it from God. Rather, it is about being present on another's behalf listening to the prayer of the Holy Spirit that is already being prayed for that person before the throne of grace and being willing to join God in that prayer. Remember Jesus said, everything that the Father has shared with me, I now share with you. That as you spend time with Jesus and as you sort through your beliefs and enter into his presence confidently, he begins to share his heart with you and what he's doing in the world. Then In a response, you begin to intercede with him. You enter into the prayers that are already being prayed. The question is, all we have to ask is, are we willing? So when you spend time with Jesus this week, are you willing to pray for your boss or your coworker or your employer this week? Are are you willing to pray for the neighbor who's always playing loud music and driving you nuts? Are you willing to pray for your relative or family member who's been a bit of a burden on you? Or are you willing to pray for the contractor who you can't get a hold of to come and fix your air conditioning? Are you willing as a friend of God to enter into the prayers that God is already praying? The heart of friendship with Jesus is to know the heart of the one who befriends you. That practically looks like taking time, setting time apart to meet with God. It it, it also means we can approach confidently into his presence because of what Jesus has done. And it means we get to enter into the prayers that are already being prayed for our neighbors and our community and for this world. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that you sent the Son, Jesus. We thank you for dying, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are present with us. Thank you that you call us friend, that we get to sit in and hear and know your heart and know your heart for us. This is so important as we even ask questions, who am I? Jesus, I ask that you would make yourself known this week to your people that they would not only become aware of your presence, but they would be aware of what you're doing 
and able to enter into the prayers that are already being prayed? Would you uproot false beliefs and correct us with true beliefs about who you are and about who we are as your sons and daughters? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. I hope you have a great day and look forward to seeing you next week as we continue our series, The Real You.